This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. It's the equality issue, Carol, a wide-ranging group of stories about education, about being trans in America, so much more. Yeah, exactly. And also a fascinating company, this individual who created a dating app, a gay dating app over in China. Now he's helping gay men expand their families. We begin, Carol, with the economic case for why this all matters. Education, access to education, Jason, we talk about it a lot. It was intended to be one of the great levelers among people, and yet we increasingly see that we are all not created equal when it comes to access. Absolutely. And this is something that really pervades the entire equality issue, which mm-hmm. is incredibly timely, especially given what we've seen over the past couple of weeks in higher education here in the United States. Gina Smilik with us from Washington. She wrote the remarks for this section and had quite a news hook here, Gina. Right. Absolutely. Uh, which was worked out pretty conveniently. We were already interested in looking into a story that talked about income mobility, intergeneration mobility, and how that interacts with access opportunities. And then the college uh, cheating scandal came out. And so it works pretty well together. But basically what, what this story is talking about is this idea that globally, not just in the U.S., but globally, what we see is that places with less equal access to opportunity also have worse income mobility. So less likely the chance that a kid who's born into the bottom part of the income distribution is going to climb higher or to the top of the income distribution and just more stickiness across generations. But at the same time, and you guys remind us, the statistics show that those folks who do go out and get a four-year degree will out-earn their you know, um, peers that don't do that, correct? We, we know about the benefits of education. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so these numbers are kind of hard to parse globally Mm. just because it's very difficult to control for quality of education. And it's very especially around the world. And it's very hard to say what someone would have done with their their careers absent in education. You could have a selection bias where kids who are more capable end up going to school. And so they earn more because of their capability. And it's hard to separate out what's the school and what's what's the inerrant skill. But I think what we can definitively say is that the folks who are making it through degrees are absolutely out earning their peers and places where you see better educational mobility. So a greater chance that someone with parents with a relatively low education level will actually go ahead and get a high education level themselves also tend to have less um, intergenerational stickiness in income. So those are also the places where you see people really jumping from the bottom of that earning scale and up to the top. And so... Give us some specific stories here, because one of the things we always love about your reporting, Gina, is that you give us some examples of people that really represent how this mm-hmm. actually looks on the ground. Tell us what you found. Right. So I, I talked to quite a few people for this story, but I think one of the stories that really stuck out to me was about this girl named Terry Collins. And she, I, sh- I call her girl, she's in her early 30s. She lives in New York City. And she's really had sort of this classic story of 
growing up in sort of a situation that might have been opportunity restricting. She was born in Flatbush in the 90s, so it wasn't the worst place in the world, but she definitely remembers hearing gunshots and having some crime in her neighborhood, and she really wanted to get out of there. You know, her mom was, she was born to a single mom. Her mom was unemployed a lot when she was younger. They mostly lived on her grandma's pension, but her mom always really encouraged her to sort of make more of herself and and sort of move up on up the, the income ladder. And so Terry actually really excelled in school, made a real effort to do that, ended up getting a scholarship and studying at Union College in upstate New York. But while she was in college, her mom died, and she ended up being just completely alone. So graduated, had a degree in English. It was 2011. The economy was bad. And she really just had to settle for whatever she could take because she needed to support herself. She was sort of without any sort of familial backing. And so at you know, 22, she finds herself working in sales, did that for about, I guess, nine years now. And now she's enrolled in an IT training uh, education program. She's learning how to do some sort of basic technology skills and hoping to get onto the ladder that way. But I think her story just really speaks to even when you do the right things, even when you are trying really hard, I think if you have sort of this situation behind you where you don't have a lot of the supports that people in more affluent and more households might have, it can be hard to vault sort of from the bottom of the income scale and up toward the top. Well, I think, you know, what's interesting is we all talk about America being the place of dreams, right? And you can do anything and everything. And we're inspired by by those stories of people who come kind of from nothing and create a lot. But what's interesting in your stories, you talk about this bigger, broader theme that's going on that folks, individuals, students are likely to earn the same incomes as their parents in places, nations with higher income inequality. And that is certainly something we're facing here in the United States and elsewhere around the world. That's a bigger thing that's going on. I think they call it what the Gatsby curve. And I think it's a really interesting point to keep in mind that we do see much greater intergenerational stickiness, this inability to progress in places where inequality is high. And that means that this lottery of birth, you know, where where you're born really affects how your life plays out is so much more important in these places. You know, if you're born at the bottom of the income ladder in a place where the bottom of the income ladder is relatively much lower, you're all, there's also a good chance you're more likely to stick there and not be able to climb up. And so I think that's really interesting. You see in places like Finland or Norway that the, or Denmark that those, those relationships are much more tenuous. You know, you, there's a lot of sort of income equality and much greater mobility, so much more ability to move from the bottom to the top. In places like the U.S., though, which which is sort of the most immobile and most unequal of advanced nations. That's Gina Smilik. And what I love about her reporting, Carol, is she's really out there talking to people, distilling these economic, these macroeconomic uh, elements into real stories. Right. And very timely when we're looking at uh, higher education, what it means for economic mobility and who really has access to the best education out there. So, Jason, it's the golden era of American higher education, yet the benefits of all that education are highly uneven. There's someone working to change that. Rebecca Cantor. She is, and it's an incredibly Mm -hmm. timely uh, effort. I feel like our heads are still spinning from everything that's happened in the news over the last couple weeks. Rebecca is here with us now. She's based in L.A., joining us in New York. Wow. I was blown (laughs) away by this story, by your story. So take us back 
to the beginning where this idea came from? This started for me when I was at Harvard. I was frustrated by my experience there and felt like a lot of the coursework I was doing was very similar to what I'd done in high school. I was privileged, grew up just outside of Boston, went to a high-performing high school where I'd taken a litany of AP courses and was disappointed that what I was doing at Harvard felt like kind of the same brand of memorize and then apply a monolithic layer of critical thinking. As I was kind of reconciling my feelings of frustration during my time at Harvard, I started to think about so many kids in this country didn't have anywhere near the high school experience nor college experience I was having. What was their high school experience and their college experience leaving them ready for? Was it actually preparing them for adulthood, for work and for life? Or was it kind of just churning them through this sitting, this system whose default settings were really oriented around getting an elite few kids like me into an elite set of colleges. Well, and you also went through what? Your first semester at Harvard and you're like, yeah, no, I'm done. First two years. <laughs> or first two years. I wish sorry. I was wise enough to, to leave after my first semester. But no, it took me a little longer. You know, there's so much anticipation when you grow up in a community like Newton where I grew up or Scarsdale or outside yeah. of San Francisco. You know, every city has these suburbs where the whole goal is getting into a school like Harvard. And for my family, that was definitely important for me because I'd had such interesting extracurricular experiences during high school, Harvard kind of felt like it left a lot to be desired in terms of my undergraduate coursework. But any in any sense, you know, I was so privileged and started 20 squares ahead, and I don't mean to diminish what Harvard offers at all, but I started to think about what the floor was really like for most high schools in America and what most kids were graduating capable of. And as I reflected on how the system worked over and over again, I came back to this line of code of SAT, ACT, APs, these college admissions requirements, mm -hmm seem to govern a lot more than just who got to go to which school. They seem to have an outsized impact on this trickle down of what high school curriculum is like and in turn what middle school is like and in turn what elementary school is like. And that's how you have, you know, parents on the Upper East Side who are shopping for their unborn child to go to the right preschool to go to Harvard. Well, you also have this incredible industry that has grown up around it, right? Of, you know, um, test, prep. test prep, books and so on and so forth. And yeah. you also find that you have a lot of schools, educational institutions institutions that are teaching to these tests. They have to, right? Especially, you know, as well-intentioned, I think, as the Obama administration was around their education reform, there were some practical challenges that made it really hard to make standards like the Common Core Standards or an act like the Every Student Succeeds Act net better for most American students. And some of the challenges just come down to, we can talk about work skills and life skills, but how do we measure those with multiple choice? How do we measure at scale where we have millions of students across grade levels across mm -hmm. countries with different ability levels, different socioeconomic status. How do you create a test that really reflects all of their progress? And and before we get to what you've created, I do want to just take a step back and talk about your experience having this conversation with your parents, because, <laughs> you know, you have alluded to the fact that where you grow up, where we live, you know, we live in the midst of all of this. And it's that time of year where at cocktail mm -hmm. parties last weekend, this weekend, everybody's going to be comparing notes and whose kid got in where. Yeah. And it's part of the world that certainly the affluent uh, live in. So so take us into your house in Newton <laughs> and having this conversation with your parents who had been very supportive of you. And, you know, I think envisioned, as many parents do, that my kid's going to Harvard. This is amazing. Well, it's, all, it's all going right. Accepted to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, full scholarship to was it Duke. Duke. And you went to Harvard. 
Yeah. Well, the funniest part of this was my mom didn't think I was going to get into many of these schools. And so I really like fashion. So we had this bet early on that I could put all these shopping cart fulls of, you know, Harvard apparel, Yale apparel, (laughs) Princeton apparel. And if I got in, then my parents would purchase the apparel. And if I didn't, then they wouldn't. And I got in. So now I have like Yale dad, Yale mom, Princeton (laughs) brother, you know, everything in the book. And the irony, of course, is that I not only did I not go to most of them, I actually didn't even finish at Harvard. But, you know, look, for for my parents, I was a kid who, as you could probably tell from a bit of remission coverage, from the day. Yeah. I kind of came out different. Yeah. I would say I'm probably not going to give the comforting answer that most parents are looking for, which is like, your kid's going to be just fine no matter where they go to college. There's some nuance to that. If you're in the top 0.1% of income bracket, your kid probably is going to be fine no matter where they go to college because there's so much of the social fabric of your life that set them on the right trajectory from birth. And by the right trajectory, what we really mean is they're unlikely to fall several socioeconomic brackets during their adult life. If you're a kid who grows up in the lowest socioeconomic brackets, it's first of all, very unlikely that you're even going to make it to one of these elite schools. But if you do, they are entirely life-changing. And so to that extent, those spots really matter for kids who start off at the bottom of kind of society's totem pole. Right. If you're somewhere in between, a lot of the data has suggested that if you're a white male, where you go among the top 300 colleges is less important. If you're anything other than a white male, then it's a little bit more important. And so the frenzy around college admissions isn't crazy. You know, I'm not someone who comes out and says, oh, no, you'll be fine if you go to the community college down the street. You might be. You might not be. It depends on what you major in. It depends on what you started as. It depends on what you want to do with your life. There are plenty of people who do go to a whole range of schools, whether that's a big state school or community college, who are equally, if not more successful than peers who go to Princeton or Yale or Cornell or wherever. But for most people... There is something to be said for the social currency that a lot of these elite schools afford. And that's beyond just what's in the curriculum. It's who you're meeting, the kind of internships you're getting. And I don't think that the conversation around education is usually that nuanced to get to. It's not just about like button chair from 8 to 3 p.m. in courses. It's about the fabric of your community that you're weaving in your early 20s and what that sets you up to do in your later 20s. In many ways, it's the social networks person to person that you're meeting, greeting, and that will with you for years Absolutely. to come. I always used to say part of why I chose Harvard over other schools, the physical layout of Harvard and like one square mile of Cambridge, you could have Oprah, Bill Gates and Elon and whoever else visiting campus on the same day. Mm-hmm. And because you could mm-hmm. easily go to the graduate schools, it kind of expanded your opportunity. That's Rebecca Cantor, the CEO of Embellus. And what's fascinating, Jason, is really bright, uh, but she is on a mission to disrupt the educational testing service. I have to say, she walked into our studio immediately sort of captivated us and we didn't want her to go in part because what she's doing is so important and I love the fact that she's taking the long view. And Carol, that's just a piece of the interview. We went for even longer. As I said, we didn't want her to leave the studio and we turned that into a longer podcast. Right. We kept talking with her even as she stood up to go. You can find the full conversation. It's a Bloomberg Business Week Extra anywhere you download podcasts. And if you have teenagers who are getting ready for college, this is a must listen. This week, reporter Josh Idelson reports on trans workers. And Jason, it's against a backdrop of an upcoming legal decision by the Supreme Court, which has to do with workplace discrimination and whether ultimately it will cover those trans workers. Very timely, as you say, given that decision. And Josh, it's a deep dive and you spent a lot of time with one specific individual, Amy. Tell us about her. So Amy Stevens is nearly 60. For most of her life, she was known to coworkers, including her boss at the funeral home that fired her 
as male and she made a decision with help from her wife, from her therapist after decades of wrestling with this to come out as a trans woman. She came to the realization that she was a trans woman and then a few years later that it was something she wasn't willing to keep to herself at work anymore, that she wasn't willing to just wait to go to the bathroom when she knew no one else was there and continue to wear male clothing and be treated as though she were male. And so she came out to her boss through a letter that she wrote. She enclosed her therapist's business card. If he wanted to get perspective from the therapist, she offered to answer any questions. And a couple weeks later, she was fired. And now her case could end up redefining how the federal law is interpreted across the country about whether or not it's legal to fire someone because they are trans. And we're going back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? That's right. So in 1964, Congress banned workplace discrimination based on several categories, including sex. And over the decades since then, our understanding of what sex discrimination includes has expanded. So the Supreme Court has said that discrimination based on sex stereotypes is a form of illegal discrimination. It's not just being discriminated against for being a man or for being a woman, but also discrimination for your way of being a man or a woman or your failure to conform to someone's idea of how a man or a woman can act can also be illegal under the Civil Rights Act. And now a question that several circuit and district courts have considered, but has not been taken up yet by the Supreme Court and could now be, is how that protection does or doesn't apply to people who were discriminated against based on their gender identity. And so tell us about Amy's decision essentially to to launch this, what's become a series of legal actions. And as you say, this has gone up and up and up because... She didn't have to, you know, she made a conscious decision pretty quickly after her dismissal that she was going to to fight it. She says it's about everybody that's in the human race should be treated equally and fairly. She made a phone call the same day, the same Friday that she was terminated to the ACLU. She was meeting with them by Monday and her case lost at the district court level, but then she won at the appeals court level. And so now the question is, will that Sixth Circuit precedent setting appeals ruling in her favor stay in place or will it be taken up and potentially overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court? And while there's concern among LGBT advocates that with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, her case could be used to eliminate transgender protections in circuits where they do exist. Amy Stevens says she has no regrets that she would do it again because it was the right thing to do, to stand up. Right, and that's the risk, though. If the Supreme Court overturns that lower circuit court ruling, I mean, you're talking about potentially no legal protection if a trans individual is fired from their workplace, correct? So right now there's a patchwork of protections. There are some states and cities that have passed protections for transgender employees, Mm -hmm. but the federal law, the Civil Rights Act, that mentions sex and is not explicit about gender identity, 
is being interpreted differently in different places. And if the Supreme Court takes this up, it could lead to a sweeping result in how that federal law is interpreted across the board, which could mean no federal law protection. And you cite in your story, um, Josh, you talk about unemployment or the unemployment rate, uh, according to one survey, among the transgender population already kind of higher than most. That's right. In a survey, it was 15 percent at a time when the overall unemployment rate, of course, was much, much lower than that. And trans people, trans advocates say discrimination is pervasive. The attorney for the Michigan ACLU's LGBT project, who's been working with Amy, told me that uh, when he started the job more than a decade ago, mostly they got calls from gay and lesbian workers. Many people may not have thought that there was a chance of winning on behalf of a transgender employee. He says now most of the calls that they get are from trans people. That's Josh Idelson. And one of the things I think we forget sometimes in these stories is these are real people Mm -hmm. and especially those who put themselves forward to be a representative of something much bigger than themselves. And let's just remind everybody, a big Supreme Court decision that really could impact trans workers in America. So something we should all be following very closely. So Jason, who knew this is a company founded more than a century ago, has an unlikely status as a progressive employer. I said, who knew? (laughs) Who knew? Dow Chemical, well known uh, to many, certainly of the corporate world, well known Mm -hmm. to many of us as consumers. Our man in Detroit, Jeff Green, he's got the story. He has been diving deep for the last couple of years into our managing diversity coverage. And I got to tell you, Jeff, this is an incredibly compelling read and a surprising one. Tell us how you got to Dow in the first place. Well, it it was kind of an unusual situation. I was the Midland Daily News Dow reporter in 1995. Come on. Are you serious? We're going down I covered the Dow Chemical Company. Wow. So I I was aware of them at a level that most people aren't. When you cover the company from the hometown newspaper, you're aware of of the company. And I sort of was vaguely aware of them all along. And after 2015, when the Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage was legal, the the states in the South started to try to scale that, skin that back however they could. They, they kind of went in and they said, you know, we're going to pass these laws. And, and corporations started to say, no, you're not. It's not good for our workers. And one of them was Dow. And I was just kind of like, Dow Chemical is like a leading company on LGBT rights that does not jive with what I remember as a cub reporter. So... Um, I, you know, I kind of was, you know, already intrigued. And then I was asking, so who are some of the executives to watch who might someday be like a gay CEO who get promoted in the job? And like, you know, Tim Cook kind of cheated because he got the job. Then he came out uh, yeah. you know, to us, which is great. But it wasn't like he was open before that as much. I mean, people may have known. But in this case, they said, well, the one one of the people that was just they said Jim Fitterling it down. And this is you know, like, OK, don't know who this guy is. I started watching him and he was clearly moving up in in the company. So I had said, hey, if he ever becomes come CEO, I want to do the interview. So the day he became CEO, they said, hey, do you want to do the interview? And, you know, I said, yes. And that's kind of how we got to this. But I was just, to me, it's just incredible that this company that I covered is, you know, is a just out of college 
is this is is as woke at least on LGBT stuff as it is. I never would have guessed. It's a conservative town. They haven't voted for a Democratic presidential candidate since 1964, and that's the only time that we could find in a century. Wow, that they've ever voted a Democrat. I mean, it's it's a white town. It's not a it's not that diverse. I mean, they're great people. I'm not saying they're not good people, but it's not the place you would expect to see LGBT rights sort of thrive. Yeah. So, and, and let's talk about that because I I love this idea that you know this town uh, as well as you do because you do point that out in the mm-hmm. story. This cognitive dissonance of sorts that's there. And so, how has this happened? Well, one of the things is Dow is in itself a little bit of a disruptor. I mean, the guy the founding of Dow was 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 basically to turned salt into chemicals and it was explosive and it was creative and it caused all kinds of trouble. The company has a history of hiring women and minorities and such because they were if they were a good chemist, they really did, Herbert Dow really didn't care what you looked like or who you were as long as you could do chemistry. That was sort of his thing was, you know, let's 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 do this and not so much care about, you know, the the other social mores of the day, I think is that would help a lot. So the foundation of the company was sort of disruptive. And then you have this sort of backdrop. People start to come into the company and, you know, who had been previously in the closet come into this company out and nobody cares. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, going back 20 years. We we talked to some people who, when they formed their first employee resource group, they they met at somebody's house in 2000 and they said, hey, um, we should go to the company and ask them for same-sex benefits because that was just starting then. And they said it seemed like a good thing to do. They had this meeting. They weren't sure what was going to happen. They all got together. They formed the group that's now called GLAD, um, Gay and Lesbians and Allies at Dow is what it was originally called. They, and they went to the company and they said, we think we should have same-sex benefits or domestic partner benefits. And the company said, okay, we'll look at it. And then the company said, okay. I mean, it just happened. <laughs> well, it wasn't like there was this long process. Yeah. Right. Well, talk to us about this employee resource groups, right? Because there's several of them, it sounds like, representing different communities at Dow. Um, and this maybe has been an incredible force for change at the company. Well, in particular, GLAD, because mm-hmm. GLAD is a majority ally. So most of the people in the group are not gay, which means they have a built-in constituency where a lot of the groups, and this is not just Dow, this is in many companies, a lot of the groups will be mostly whatever the group is. If it's a veterans group, they're veterans. If it's an African-American group, it's primarily African-Americans. And Dow is actually now saying, let's tear that all up. We want all our groups to be mostly not what the group represents. We want there to be allies in the group so we can get the kind of change that we're getting with LGBT workers that we're you know, that we with all our other groups. It, it's this great model with so many allies, they always had somebody who was on their side. It also sounds like Andy Liveris, the CEO, longtime CEO of Dow, also was an advocate to, you know, make sure there was diversity and that many different groups were represented and respected, really, at the company. Yeah, he's from Australia, so he comes in with a little bit of different thinking. And, and a lot of this isn't in the story, because this is really a story about Jim Verling and sort of how he got to where he is. But um, Andrew talked about being at one of his first assignments in the United States down in the South, and he sat at the wrong table, which meant he sat with the African-American workers. And some of the other workers came up to him and said, you know, hey, you may not understand this, but you're sitting at the wrong table. And mm. he said, no, I'm not. I'm sitting mm. at the right table. And he made it, a, you know, right 
there and then he said he kind of made it a point that he was never going to be the kind of person that allowed for there to be a wrong table at the company and so it's kind of he he had that in his head and you know he he makes the point and you know we talked to him in the story when people say how did you get here in sort of a quizzical way and he actually he plays dumb like what do you mean you know right. they mean how did you get a gay ceo but he's kind of like i mean jim's a great guy what are you talking about you know it's like he he thinks it's a question you shouldn't even be asking and yet it was a question that, that a lot of people asked, and, and you asked the question as well. And as you mentioned, and I like that you did this in the story, you talked about the fanfare, in part courtesy of Bloomberg Business Week, of Tim Cook's coming out. And Fitterling, right. you know, very quietly ascended to the CEO position again at a company very different from Apple. With In Tim Cook's case, Apple is seen as a very mm-hmm. progressive company. Dow, given where it's based, and candidly, given the business that it's in, maybe less obvious. Tell Tell us about Fitterling and the significance and the process there. Yeah, and I mean, actually, Jim Fitterling came out slightly before Tim Cook. Right. Just was much less publicity for it. Um, he basically knew he was gay in college, I think is what he said. But he stayed in the closet through most of his Dow career. So, so when, when Jim Fitterling's in Asia, he meets his husband, now husband, at the time his partner. Um, and they have a relationship that is ongoing from then on. And in 2008, he gets cancer, and he, and he realizes, you know, he almost dies. And he decides that he needs to kind of stop living these two lives. He has his professional life and his personal life, and they don't mix. So he starts this very, I mean, he is still a Dow executive, and there is very conservative thinking. He, was, he's, he didn't rush right out. In 2008, he started to tell people closest to him. And as he was promoted, as he rose in the company, he decided that he needed to broaden this. And, and then come 2014, he realized realizes at this point it's probably sending the wrong message to other workers that this high level executive that people are probably inferring probably have a pretty good idea is is gay is not openly gay so on coming out day in 2014 he goes on an employee webcast in an auditorium and and, and he comes out and he says you know i've been with the company 30 years i've been with my partner for 20 years and it's time for the two to be part of my you know work identity and so this is kind of you know when this all comes together but keep in mind he's not ceo at this time he's still I think two jobs below CEO. So there, you could infer at some companies that would have been where he ended his career is at at that point. And that's not what happens. Jeff, you know what I think is interesting too, that, you know, he still says that there's more to be done at the company, but he talks about, um, adding an inclusion goal to top executives bonus structure. So their bonus is contingent to some extent, right? On making sure that, you know, there is diversity, there is inclusion, I guess, in whatever they, you know, oversee, whatever territory they oversee at the company. Yeah, it's part of the conversation now. It's not necessarily exactly this percentage for this mm-hmm. at this point. It's it's an evolving conversation because it's new. He also, um, they well, he didn't, but they also have, right before he took the job over, hired their first inclusion and diversity executive. So they have sort of a focus on making this a broader mandate across the company. And, and there is some work to do. They're still um, only about 27% women, and um, the minority population is about 21%. And as you go up in management, those numbers go down. Well, and Jeff, as you point out in the story, this is still a company that's operating in markets and countries around the mm-hmm. world that are not on board with a lot of this. Saudi Arabia maybe being one of the most notable. 
and, and most U.S. states, including Michigan, um, still allow discrimination based on your um, sexual, your you know, sexuality. So even here in Michigan, it's legal to discriminate in in several ways against people who are LGBT. That's Jeff Green, and I love this. Here's Dow Chemical. This company's been around for more than a hundred years. Who would have thought that they really would have been one of the companies to look to in terms of making inroads when it comes to diversity, equality, and really helping the LGBT community? And I feel like this issue is just filled with what I would call reporters, reporters. I've known Jeff since I first started at Bloomberg more than 15 years ago. He started his career, as he pointed out, covering this little town. So he knows the ins and outs of this story, and he's really uh, one of the best. Lloyds of London has a sexual harassment problem. You spoke with reporter Gavin Finch about what's going on at this 330-year-old insurance market. So, Gavin, this issue, the equality issue, takes us to a lot of places where companies are making pretty bold moves, being progressive, being inclusive. And yet Lloyd's there in London. This feels like a story from 40, 50 years ago. What did you find? Um, Well, to be fair on Lloyd's, I think it is an issue that um, they have tried to grapple with. Um, And certainly the... um, Previous Chief Executive Officer Inga Beale um, made promoting diversity and inclusion kind of the top of her agenda um, and did more than anybody else in the insurance industry to try and push these issues to the top of the agenda. But it does seem that the, at the coalface, um, you know, at the Lloyd's Exchange and certainly in the pubs and bars around it, that message was not filtering down. Um, so over the last several months, I've spoken to 18, more than 18 women who work at Lloyd's and in the wider insurance industry. Um, and the picture they paint is of a market that is, I guess, in essence, hostile to, to women, um, where they face near persistent sexual harassment um, across the whole range from kind of unwanted comments about their appearance or their bodies or you know, even their sex lives to um, unwanted touching, uh, groping, and, you know, even to serious sexual assault. Um, And as I'm sure you can imagine, this is making their lives um, somewhat of a misery. And so tell us about what Lloyd's actually is, because one of the things you point out in the story is even... The, the physical setup of the place, you know, may be somewhat uh, antiquated in most people's mind. And yet, you know, this is a market, uh, a physical uh, market that, that looks a little bit different. Yeah, it definitely is antiquated. So it hasn't really changed that much in um, 300 years or so. It's, uh, it's essentially an exchange where insurance is bought and sold. Um, So you have all the world's biggest uh, insurance companies and underwriters for them um, at Lloyd's every day selling uh, or bidding rather for um, for trillions of dollars of uh, insurance contracts from brokers who will be representing, um, you know, anyone from shipping companies to plane companies. Um, And... uh, Uh, While the rest of the world has kind of moved on to digital technology, at Lloyd's everything is still done, or the vast majority of things are still done on paper. You see these guys walking around with sheaths of paper underneath their arms, um, and uh, they still use, you know, rubber stamps to seal deals, uh, and, and, you know, they they sign their signatures on on these deals. So, yeah, it's very much a market that is kind of stuck in the past. 
Well, and in order to bring it into the current century, maybe even the century before this one, you know, one of the things that the outgoing CEO sought to do was essentially ban alcohol given or ban drinking on the job because that was an element that seemed to be contributing to this environment. That didn't go over so well. Well, to be fair, the the ban on um, alcohol during the working day was only for the corporation staff, so only for the Lloyd's staff. Um, The vast majority of the people who work at Lloyd's are not employed by the corporation. They're employed by, uh, you know, big insurance companies who basically go in there to to do their work. but it is certainly is fair to say that the um, the majority of the issues that were raised to me by the women I spoke to, the root cause of most of them was alcohol. Um, when I asked, you know, what made what was one of the reasons why, um, you know, this problem was particularly persistent at Lloyd's and in London, um, they did say it was the culture of, of daytime drinking, of heavy drinking. Uh, and when you have um, lots of people drinking too much, you know, bad behavior can follow. And as you reported this story, Gavin, and you talk to people outside of Lloyd's and maybe even outside of the insurance industry, is this maybe more pervasive than most people know across the city or how isolated is this? It seems to be a problem pretty uh, much uh, at Lloyd's, not across the wider city. Of course, there's sexual harassment everywhere, um, but it does seem to be particularly acute at Lloyd's and the, the wider London insurance market. Um, we spoke to a number of women who had international experience and had experience working in banking and other professions who had subsequently moved to London to work in insurance. And, um, you know, they they all said, no, this is a particular problem to London uh, and a particular problem to insurance. Uh, And again, one of the reasons they cited for that was the alcohol. Um, You know, it's the last corner of finance, the last corner of the city where you can get away with daytime drinking. Um, It's not just um, condoned, it's it's almost expected, it's encouraged. Um, It's a very uh, sociable market where... You know, people are making deals on the floor of Lloyd's, then they're going into the pubs and they're going back into their offices and then they're, you know, maybe going back to the pub and going back to Lloyd's. Uh, It's a very sociable market and a lot of that revolves around alcohol. Um, And that does indeed seem to be one of the, the biggest problems, according to at least the women that I've spoken to. That's Gavin Finch. And as we've been talking about, Carol, this is the sort of story that really catches you off guard because everything we've seen over the last couple of years, you think this is still happening right now? Yeah, it's fascinating. And I have to say, it's my must read for the issue this week. This next story takes us to China, Jason, to an entrepreneur, a member of the LGBT community whose own experiences have led him to create a company to help others. The company is called Blued. It's well known across China. Dune Lawrence, she lived in China for a time. She's well connected there. You bring us this story. It is fascinating. Tell us. So a friend of mine about a year ago said, you've got to write about this company, Blued. And she works in public health. And she said, they just, they do all this work with the government in, in anti-HIV stuff. And um, they're also doing this new program where they help gay guys go overseas and have babies by surrogate in the U.S. I was like, oh, that sounds like a story. Why is that happening? Right. And well, it turns out it starts with, the founder of this company himself, uh, who goes by the name Gungla. And he he decided, he started this 
app for gay men. It's a gay dating app, but mm-hmm. a kind of a community app. It's not really all about hooking up, um, especially in China, where outside of the big cities, it hasn't, you know, it's still not totally cool to be out and proud. Um, so Blued, this app, has really made a big difference for communities outside of the big cities. Um but anyway, so sort of he said that after 35, he just got baby fever. He really wanted to have a baby. And so he did some research and figured out that surrogacy is illegal in China. Um, and then there's also sort of being a gay guy. And, and you know, it's hard to do anything as a single parent. Um, and so he decided to go to California and have a baby by surrogate. And when he came back, he brought this baby home and he thought, I'm going to start this as a business. Uh, an offshoot of my dating app, Blued. So he started this about in May 2017. And it's been slow. I mean, when we talked to him, my colleague David Ramley in Beijing talked to him, sat down with him, and he said, you know, compared to the internet, this is really high touch. It's kind of, you know, it's it's a lot. You know, these clients want a lot, and it, there's a lot going on. You know, you have to deal with getting them to the U.S. and shepherding them around and finding the right people, the right egg donors, the right doctors. Um, but he said it, he thinks he can help a lot of people. Right. And partly that's because, you know, you can see in the big cities, you know, you'd go to Beijing and you go to Shanghai and think, oh, wow, it's just being gay in China is just like being gay in the U.S. But um, well, in his personal experience, even with his family, mm-hmm. you know, first coming out to them and then having a baby it helps illustrate that in, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, for him, having this child not only was very personally fulfilling, but it really kind of solved this problem, which was the relationship with his parents, who were still don't really accept that he's gay and like were very unhappy when he came out. Um, but now they have a grandchild and they're so overjoyed and it's just kind of repaired that relationship. So Gungla had a baby, right? Had a son in California. Was his son a Chinese citizen or American citizen? The babies are born in the U.S., so they ha- automatically have U.S. citizenship. Um, when they go back to China, there's a very arcane system in China right. that continues to be sort of problematic for even regular Chinese people without surrogate babies, which is you have a sort of a residency permit and you have to get it basically from your parents' hometown, which is often not where they live. And it's very complicated. There's no clear kind of laid out route for a parent of a baby born by surrogate to get that. Right. So I think they can sometimes, you know, it's they work it out. But in fact, for a lot of these gay men who are having children by surrogate, it's an advantage to have a U.S. passport, partly because they're worried about putting them into this Chinese system that's going to be biased against them for not being part of a normal family. Right. So they're, they're, even Gung Le and um, these other men I talked to are thinking long term that they'll they'll move abroad with their mm-hmm. child and, and send them to an international school anyway, mm. just to be in a, an environment that fits them better. Right. So on the on the Chinese government and where it is, I mean, for now, it's kind of benign you know, look the other way. And I think partly uh, one one sort of expert suggested to me that there may be, they may be looking at their demographics and thinking, well, more babies is better because they are hitting this kind of rapid graying and they right. want more babies. Right. So even if they're not from traditional families, you know, more babies is more babies and that's good in the long run. Do you have any sense of how this business is growing? Because, mm-hmm. you know, as you pointed out, this is not a 
shall we say, in, in business terms, a rapidly scalable business necessarily. It's very high touch. There's a lot that goes into this whole process, especially when you're dealing with multiple countries and travel back and forth and presumably some language barriers at, at times. So how does it grow? Is it growing? It is growing. Um, I mean, they've sent so few people to California at this point. It's been it's been a year and a half. Um so it's a slow process because it takes a long time. Uh, they, they expect it to be profitable this year. Um, and I think it's also a demonstration of kind of their ability to move offline, off the internet, and get into kind of a suite of other mm-hmm. kinds of services for the LGBT community. Because you talked about the, you know being a supplier for an HIV medicine, correct? Yeah, for PrEP. Yep. Yeah. So there's a bunch of things that they're kind of looking, because they're thinking about an IPO, right? Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot of yes, stuff going on here with this company. Gungla is really eager to do an IPO and... They want to demonstrate the power of this market that right. they tap into. Well, right? just and finish on that, if we can, because you talk about here's a billion plus population, right? If we just go by normal standards of what percentage um, are is probably a gay population, we're talking about what, 130, 40 million people. Potentially. I know there's some controversy. Yeah, potentially. I mean, you know, who knows what the exact percentage right. in, you know, if everyone who secretly or LGBT right. came out, like to... what the percentage would be. But I, we work for Bloomberg, right? We work for Business Week. We want to know the investor perspective. When I talked to investors, they were they were just they were just when they made these investments, these are sort of VCs who got in early. It's yeah. like it's demography. You know, it's like if China's like the rest of the world and it probably is. It's there's going to be a lot of LGBT people in the future, right? If right. you think it's ten percent, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's 140 million people. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about who is backing this company. They've been really successful in getting VC funding. Um, they raised a hundred more than 130 million wow. um, through sort of early last year, mm-hmm. and now I think they're not going to do. I, they want to do an IPO. That's Dune Lawrence. And this is a fascinating story about what's going on in Beijing. An entrepreneur, a gay man, and his own experiences. He's turned it into a company and he's trying to help others. This is a juggernaut. Certainly watch this space. And I love how Dune came to this story. You know, she basically got a tip from a friend. She used to live in China. And that's really uh, where you get the best stuff. Teach your children well. So it's meant to be one of the great levelers, and yet it hasn't necessarily worked out that way for many. It's a main topic of discussion in the magazine this week. We're talking about education. Let's get some thoughts on this from Melanie Lundquist. She's real estate investor, philanthropist, co-founder and vice chair of the board of the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools based in California. So tell me a little bit about public education and are we making progress in making it better for more? We are making progress and making it better for more. The inequalities are still vast. Uh, our students are so bright. Uh, the partnership schools are all inner city schools uh, in Los Angeles, Watts, Boyle Heights, South LA, very, very high level poverty. Um, what we're not addressing as well as we should is the inequality. Uh, you look at uh, the schools and what they're getting financially from the districts. You have newer teachers in the more difficult to place schools. Um, you have many, many factors that don't 
really allow for equality. But we are, the partnership is making a great deal of progress. And maybe take a step back. Tell us about the partnership and the work that you guys are doing. The Partnership for Los Angeles Schools was established by former Mayor Antonio Villaragosa when he became mayor of L.A., along with my husband and myself. And uh, it is a public-private partnership, which is exactly what we need. We need public-private philanthropic partnerships. The money is not there. The public dollars are not there to fund what is needed to sustain and create the opportunities in education that our students need. And so we formed the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools, and all of our schools, they reside, when we take them, they reside mostly in the lowest 5%, a few closer to the lower 10%. And Those 10% in terms of grades of kids or economic? In, in or ac- uh, academic performance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, children that are really way below grade level. Right. Um, we know they're exceedingly bright, and we know they can do it. Uh, it is up to the public to believe in them. It's up to us to to give the teachers what they need. Um, the partnership is based on great leaders, which are our principals, and we scour the country for them. Great teachers, which means coaching and professional development, and resources from the community for them. Um, And we need to make sure that we look at this as a very unequal situation for many students. And what are you seeing, uh, Melanie, from the federal uh, level? You know, the Secretary DeVos obviously has come out with a school choice tax credit. Uh, what do you make of that? How does that jive with the, the work that you've done and, and you plan to do? Well, we're working inside the district. You can't change a system unless you work inside the system. It's the most difficult work to do, no doubt about it, because Uh, You've got all the obstacles, but that's exactly what we wanted. We want to work inside the system to know what the obstacles are so that we can come up with solutions. We are spending $675 in additional monies per student per year for a turnaround organization. That is a very, very low number. Right. And so we have been able to keep it low and yet solve problems and then the district LAUSD being second largest in the United States they can take what we pioneer so to speak and they can adopt it for the whole district I'm always curious about what makes the biggest difference in a a student's life who sometimes is struggling with maybe a tough home life um, economic disadvantages and um, what makes the biggest impact in you know once you get the student in the classroom mm-hmm. and helping them to succeed and achieve well I can speak from personal experience what made the biggest difference for me great humans on the campus great principal great teachers yeah four generations of my family were educated in LAUSD and we always got phenomenal educations and my teachers, I adored them. Mm-hmm. I adored them. And many of our students have wonderful teachers they feel the same way about. 
but in your lower income areas the teachers don't stay as long and so it's a revolving door and carol that was our conversation with melanie lundquist co-founder of the partnership for los angeles schools right a philanthropist and she's really trying to figure out how to improve the public educational system uh, there in la it's a tough task well and i love this notion of active philanthropy Mm -hmm. and let me tell you she struck me uh, as someone who's really rolling up her sleeves and for more great conversations like the one you just heard be sure to join us live monday through friday at 2 p.m wall street time here on Bloomberg Radio. So Jason, concern over Silicon Valley's growing market power and handling of data, it has definitely evolved beyond heightened grumblings by officials under consideration at the extreme. We're talking about a breakup of big tech. Well, and I feel like we saw the first signs of this with the big tech executives getting called to Capitol Hill. And we're going to talk about what lawmakers are doing, but attorneys general, that's where the rubber meets the road. Peter Robinson joins us from Seattle. He's got this story. A lot of great reporting here. Peter, take us inside what's happening in some of the big capitals around the country? Sure. I I think uh, heightened grumbling is a good way of putting it. There are a number of attorneys general who think there's a problem with the tech companies uh, just being too big, having too much market power, having too much control over consumer data. And uh, what my colleague Josh Brustein and I wanted to do was to check in because there hadn't been much talk about what the attorneys general are doing since September when a group of them met with Jeff Sessions, who was then the attorney general at the Justice Department. And uh, Sessions had called them in because he was uh, concerned that the platforms were suppressing conservative views. But a number of these attorneys general sort of steered the conversation, we were told, toward the, the market dominance and the privacy issues. And uh, we've also heard that a a group of those states have have since taken a further step and are investigating a possible antitrust action against Google in particular, which hadn't been disclosed before. So, Peter, I want to take a step back because you've been following the tech industry for a long time. You and I have worked together for a long time here at Bloomberg. And, And I do wonder, in your estimation, what was the catalyst here that sort of got these guys interested in it because we do seem to be at this moment over the last 18 months or so where we're doing a broad kind of overview or revision maybe of our own view as a society of of what role these companies are holding. What happened? I think probably the 2016 election uh, happened and and that uh, really starkly made people realize the, 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 the dark side of of technology, uh, just in terms of it having the capability to uh, affect people's perception of reality. And it also um, broke across partisan lines that you have um, conservatives who are very concerned about the suppression of free speech, and you have um, people on the other side who are concerned about the the market dominance and the privacy issues. And as we reported in the story, uh, this is uh, Ted Cruz uh, sent a tweet and said, this is the first time I've ever retweeted Elizabeth right. Warren. Uh, he agrees with her on, on antitrust, and, and, or, or at least in terms of the market power of tech. Well, I do wonder, too, and you you know put this in your, your reporting, I go back to the late 1990s, right? This isn't the first time that people have rallied or railed against big technology. And I think about all of the states who went against Microsoft in the late 1990s. Is this akin to that, or is this something different? Yeah, th- there is a real precedent for this, because... It is that antitrust case that was brought by 20 states and the federal government against Microsoft that really led to the the rise of Google. But but before that antitrust case, uh, Microsoft 
uh, had a freer hand to, to bundle its own search engine with its uh, operating system. And uh, although that case uh, didn't result in Microsoft being broken up, it, it did force the company to change its behavior. And, and so a lot of people are pointing out the, the parallels today that the similar scrutiny against Google could, could have some of the same effects in, in allowing n- new competitors to emerge. But there's a long way from grumblings and state attorney generals getting together to actually something being done or to a breakup of big tech, correct? We're, we're hearing a, a lot of statements of the problem, but not a lot of agreement about the solutions. And uh, we, we also got a number of cautions that it's, it's very early days and that uh, it, it, it may ultimately be the case that the states turn this back over to the federal government. Uh, and, and there are people in the federal government who, who, who are concerned. The FTC will be holding hearings. And Josh Hawley, who was previously the Missouri Attorney General and opened an investigation, is now a senator and, and is pressing for, for more action by the FTC. So, so this is something that's building, but it's, it's not there yet. Well, and Peter, I'm glad you brought up Josh Hawley, Senator Hawley, because it does feel like this is something that some of the brighter lights, some of the newer lights in Congress are really taking up as a key issue. You know, you alluded earlier or you mentioned earlier Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz. I I mean, the unlikeliest of bedfellows <laughs> right. politically. But, you know, Josh Hawley and none other than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from here in New York, they may be uh, teaming up. It is fascinating that in this hyper-partisan time, this could be the issue that actually gets some bipartisan attention. It's true. And maybe maybe Nancy Pelosi ultimately will be on the other side because she comes from right. San Francisco, where tech is, is important to the economy. So, yeah, that's a lot of odd, uh, odd couples in, in, this, in this story. All right. So, you know, how do we make sense of it, I think, as investors? I always think about this because we certainly have seen, as Jason kicked off, you know, the CEOs of big tech being hauled in front of uh, members of Congress, having to answer questions. So there feels like there certainly is a lot more momentum out there. Will the next set of elections be the real test? You know, we're just coming off New Zealand. We saw the role of social media increasingly in that uh, terrible incident. Um, an act of terrorism. So I don't know, how do we as, as investors kind of figure out where this is going? As you mentioned, it's kind of early in the game here. Yeah, I, th- I think after our story moved, the, the shares of Google parent Alphabet did did take a hit, uh, not, not a large one. And, and maybe that uh, sums up the reaction. It's something that investors are watching, but it's, it's not something that they're going to be selling the shares uh, off of at this point. And let's not forget, the magazine has talked about the amount of lobbying that we're seeing by big tech. I mean, that increases, right? So they're certainly getting the attention, at least the pockets, of uh, lawmakers up on Capitol Hill. And the other side of it is is the fight back. And Amazon has increased its lobbying spending. All of the tech companies have increased their lobbying spending. And uh, so so this this fight just has a a long way to go before we can say how it's going to end. Well, we're glad you are on top of it. Peter Robeson joining us from Seattle. Great story this week. Another great story this week comes from Europe, and it has to do with the potential merger between Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank and how European banks are in trouble. Here we are still a decade after the global financial crisis, and they're still in a tough situation, Jason. So let's go to London. Eliza Martinusi joins us. So, Eliza, tell us what's going on with those banks over there. Well, I think as you um, uh, hinted at, the financial services industry took a very different course after the financial crisis. Um, with the U.S. pushing lenders to recapitalize, clean up their balance sheets very early on. In, the, in Europe, what you saw is that um, you know, individual lenders were um, 
took state aid, took bailouts, but there wasn't sort of a, an industry-wide program, uh, notwithstanding the fact that, of course, several years after the financial crisis, Europe was also um, the, you know, the subject of a sovereign debt crisis. Um, and, and there again, you know, there, there was talk about a broad industry-wide recapitalization, but it didn't happen. And what that's led to is banks tackling their weaknesses only very ever, ever so slowly, you know, very slowly and piecemeal. They've gone about, you know, small capital raisings when they could, when the window was open, when investors were willing. They've tweaked their businesses around the edges. Um, and there hasn't really been an industry-wide reboot. Um, I mean, that's obviously, you know, a generalization, but I think that's left some of the bigger players uh, somewhat weak right now. Um, and, you know, balance sheet in certain parts of Europe, take, for example, Italy, still needing to, to, to strengthen. Well, and what's interesting, too, and I love this point, and I hadn't realized this, but Europe really relies on its banks in terms of, I guess, loans and so on to really generate growth, right? Very different from the United States. And this is, this is why it's so important to have uh, the European region have a healthy financial sector. Absolutely. That transmission mechanism here is absolutely critical. The majority of companies finance themselves through uh, bank loans. The same is true for households. Um, and you have a you do have a capital market, of course, but it's certainly nowhere near as deep as the U.S. So you, for economic growth to to maintain and, and accelerate, you really need those banks to be fit. And unfortunately, what you're seeing is that in far too many instances, the weak profitability and their balance sheets needing um, needing bolstering has meant that they haven't gone out uh, on a massive expansion um, in, in credit. And let's talk about the, the German banks for a minute, if we can. And obviously, no one knows exactly where this story will end, although it feels mm-hmm. like many observers, including many here at Bloomberg, have thought, well, this was where we were going to end up with a merger of these two banks. As Carol said at the top, the German government certainly has a vested interest, both literally and figuratively, in helping make that happen. The German economy has long been the stalwart of Europe. What has happened specifically there that's gotten us to this place? Well, you have these two large institutions, two of the bigger banks there, Deutsche Bank clearly also being Europe's biggest investment bank, that have basically been you know, very painfully reorganizing a little bit, but really not being able to tackle a longer-term decline in revenue and profitability. And over the last six months or so, there has been you know, increasing speculation that this would happen, notwithstanding the fact that there are a lot of observers that um, point to the fact that putting these two institutions together, Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank, isn't really going to help them um, tackle their individual and combined weaknesses, um, which are namely going to remain an investment bank um, that Deutsche Bank brings to the table that is uh, you know, inefficient, wholly, you know, significantly inefficient. And of course, the two combined institutions would still be extremely exposed to the very, um, you know, the interest rate cycle, which of course in Europe is very, um, you know, is, is a negative territory right now, but also to a German commercial banking industry that is extremely competitive. That's Eliza Martinuzzi, and it just is a reality of what's going on in the European financial sector. And this is one more thing that they've got to deal with over there. Well, and what a stark contrast between what's happening Mm -hmm. in Europe and what's happening with the U.S. banks. It feels like the U.S. banks only are getting more and more powerful, even after uh, the global financial crisis. A very, very different story. 
over there. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast, download, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. And we'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.